Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Virago Podcast, a monthly celebration of books, reading, and writing, brought to you by Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. Hi, this is Lenny Goodings, and I'm with Susan Fletcher, and we're talking about her amazing new novel called House of Glass, which we published in November. So, Sue... Um, I love this novel so much. I, I can't tell you. It's, I, all the words um, like haunting, gothic, um, scary, um, but also beautifully written. Um, so I'd like you to start by telling us a little bit about sort of where did it come from and also what is this novel about? This novel is it's set in 1914. Um, it concerns uh, our heroine who is called Clara. She uh, lives in London. She is um, a woman who has had a a very different upbringing in that she has a condition called osteogenesis imperfecta, which is also known as brittle bone disease. Therefore, she has had a very um, cloistered life up to the age of about 18 or 19. The book sees her leaving that environment for the first time and um, coming up to Gloucestershire to a uh, house that is loosely based on a National Trust property, I know. Um, really, this is a book about one summer in 1914, war is looming. It is about what she finds in this house, in the gardens that surround it. It involves uh, secrets, which means that talking about the plot is going to be quite hard mm-hmm. to do without giving spoilers in this pod. Uh, it's about secrets, it's obviously about discoveries, uh, it's about trust and there is a rumoured ghost in this house, so the themes of what is true and and what is life and consequently what is death are all come to the fore. And you had a really... Um, I mean, it was very clever, your choice of, of Clara, because she's a grown-up... I mean, she's... How old is she when she comes to... She's 20. OK, so she's ostensibly grown-up, although it is a t- time when um, young girls, mm-hmm. not unmarried girls, were, were chaperoned, etc., but, I mean, she's grown up enough that she can take this train journey by herself, she can take mm-hmm. this job. She's called to this big house, isn't she, to do she a is. job. Yeah. Just tell us what the job is again. So, uh, Clara basically is coming to Shadowbrook, the house in Gloucestershire, on behalf of Kew Gardens. She has a knowledge of plants, specifically 
specifically she has a knowledge of hothouse flowers of um, exotic tropical plants and she has been asked to come up to Shadowbrook for a month to establish a plant house for the owner who is a man called Mr Fox. And she picks up for me um, sort of tropes like um, from The Secret Garden, for mm. example, Frances Hodges Burnett. So mm -hmm. she's a cantankerous book. little thing, isn't she? I mm -hmm. mean, she's 20, but she's quite cantankerous. Um, but also you've, you cleverly have her as if she doesn't really know about the world, does she? She's very naive. I, I wanted to have exactly that. I wanted to have a character who is emboldened and feisty, unusually so for the time. But I also wanted her to be incredibly vulnerable and I've had the idea for this book for nearly 10 years it's an egg I've been hatching for a very long time and the one thing I've known from the start is that I wanted my protagonist to yes be um, forthright and nosy and um, apparently confident but to have that um, uh, that underneath to have her actually having a, a very physical vulnerability and wanted her to be compromised some way. Um, for a while I thought about having her um, with restricted vision. I looked into various eye complaints for a long time. Uh, but I settled with um, a bone condition because I wanted this book to be about strength, amongst other things. She is, on one hand, a very strong woman, unusually so for 1914. She is adamant we, we as women should have the vote. She is, um, uh, she, she's angry that she doesn't have the opportunities and freedoms that anybody her age who was male would. So on one hand, she's incredibly strong, but of course, when we think about physical strength, really, at the core of it is our skeleton and our, our bones. So for her to have... a a skeletal frailty, I think, not only makes her far more interesting, but it also increases the idea of her being under threat, which is another theme in the book. Indeed, there's a really strong feeling of peril or jeopardy, because mm. um, there are maids in this house too, and, and, and when she first gets there, she um, is aware, isn't she, that the maids are very unhappy and the housekeeper's not sleeping. And, yes. You know, so you've, you've, what I love is that you've picked up the sort of the tropes of the haunted house story, haven't you? Because you've got a big house, sure. you've got a mysterious owner, mm -hmm. you've got this young girl called into it. But then you do some quite different things with it too. But it must have been fun to play with the tropes of the oh, of the haunted so of the fun. gothic novel. Absolutely, so much fun. I've not written a gothic novel before, and it's something I've wanted to do for a very long time. Um, most of my favourite books fall into the, into the gothic category. So it took me a while to sort of probably um, pluck up the bravery to come at it because I knew this would be a challenge, but it's also been a complete treat. I've loved writing about um, a place I know very well. I'm sure we're gonna talk about that shortly, a National Trust property I know and love and have always loved. I, I knew with Clara that I was going to just adore um, padding her out, making her real and textured and vital. And she's going to be a character that's gonna take a long time to leave me, I know that. Um, and yes, you talk about the tropes. There are um, aspects of this book that will probably feel familiar because they feel familiar to me, to me but I wanted to make them fresh and different and surprising. Mm. And the other, um, I think you have, and the other person, uh, the other novelist that comes to mind is obviously Daphne du Maurier, isn't it? Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yes, I think she is... Um, 
she's fascinated me for a very long time. Rebecca, obviously, is is her masterpiece, but the first book of hers I read was Jamaica Inn, and I remember having a very um, uh, dramatic response to reading this book. I remember just opening the first couple of pages, and she's in a carriage going across the Bodmin Moor with the rain coming in sideways. There's some description about the rain being like stones being thrown against the glass. And I knew, reading that, that here was someone very different, that here was a very... Um, dark, um, sinister, um, uh, physical writer. You could feel what she was writing about. And there's always tension in her books. Um, even where there's romance, it's it's got a darkness, mm. which is just so exciting. Um, so it's lovely to, to have um, this book compared to, to her work. Well, amazing. <laughs> but I do want to stress that you, uh, you kind of turn some of these tropes on their heads. I'm not going to tell you. the listeners how, but, you know, it's not... Um, a straightforward ghost story in any sense of the word and I would no. use the word haunting rather than ghost in any case but um, Amanda Craig has given us a nice quote gorgeously gothic um, I was thinking about the about the uh, the style um, and a ghost story in a way or haunting story it gives you a sort of freedom in, mm -hmm. a, in a way doesn't it because you can push boundaries in a way that Yes, you can. You can really play. Um, I think, I was thinking about this, knowing I was doing the podcast with you, I was thinking about the the haunting story, the ghost story, which as we say, it's, it's quite to be careful how we describe this book, but what is the continued allure of, of, of this kind of book? Because there is no sense that this is ever going to be a subject that stops being interesting. Um, and I think it's because the concept of the ghost um it's so invariably it's so linked to the great big question of life really i mean is there a life beyond this one what happens when we die very a very old ancient question um but one we probably know not necessarily any closer to answering uh, we might be more scientifically evolved now and, and there might be a um a far uh greater case for saying yes there you know this is all there is but you're always going to have people who think opposite and more exciting than that you're always going to have people who aren't sure there's a gray area and that's the most exciting place to be as a writer to walk into the gray area and to play with the readers who could be persuaded one way or the other and clara at the heart of this book um is precisely that kind of character she thinks that she knows it all she's um pragmatic she reads books she does not believe anything unless there is scientific evidence for it and so she comes into the book um ridiculing those who have been unsettled by this house and believe in the supernatural but there is gray area within her and i wanted to slowly tease her and hopefully the reader into um into believing otherwise and you do and you do <laughs> the first time i read this in manuscript i sort of um I, I so didn't see the thing that happens coming, so I'm just... <laughs> the I'm thing going we can't to, talk about. That's right, the thing we cannot talk about. Um, I like um, Jill Dawson has uh, also given us a quote, beautiful, mesmerizing, like entering a dream. I was spellbound and couldn't do anything else but keep reading. Hmm. I thought that was wonderful, really wonderful. Um, I like her words, mesmerizing and like entering a dream, but is that? do you think that's the sort of idea... I mean, it's obviously the ideal in this book, which is to surprise the reader, keep them spellbound. Mm. Incredibly generous words from Jill. Um, I, 
It's that's a good question. I think I did. I wanted to. It's again this idea of playing with scientific fact and the the possible, the imagined. Um, one of the themes in the book too is truth. What actually is true, um, and what do we want the truth to be? I have characters in this in this book who um, know what they would prefer to believe, and therefore move towards it. And I think we all do that. I think we all have a preference as to what the truth might be, and long for that to be the the truth. Um, so playing around with what is true, what is a dream, what is real, what is imagined, um, is something that. I knew I wanted to do with this book. So the word mesmerising and, and, and dreamlike is, is lovely. They're both lovely to, to, to be used with, with the book by Jill. And um, we've been very blessed with quotes for this book mm. already. We haven't even published it, but already um, we've got a nice one from Tracy Chevalier too. And I was very interested with her to go back to Clara because she says it may start as a ghost story, but it turns into something more profound an examination of how women carve life. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. ...out of a male-dominated society, even with the looming war that will change everyone. I was surprised and moved. Surprised again. I'm loving, mm. loving that. But the, the idea of how this young woman sort of, even in this very contained space, doesn't she? Because, I mean, we mm -hmm. see her t a tiny bit in London... And then she's mostly in in the sort of um, in the confines of this house, isn't yeah. she, and the garden? But yet she is finding her way, isn't she? That the world is changing around her, but yeah, she's also she's had a suffragette mum. Yeah, um, she's changing hugely. And um, the book is really only the heart of the book is a month, about five weeks, I think, all in all. Um, and the difference to her in those five weeks is enormous. And the difference to the world around her uh, is enormous. Only when I was researching this book did I fully appreciate um, how unforeseen the First World War was by the general public. Um, behind the scenes in, in cabinet rooms, I think it was um, seen from a distance. But the average person living their life in 1914 was probably aware that there were problems going on, but nobody actually thought there was going to be a war, and right until perhaps a week before. Um, there was a, a bank holiday the day before war was announced, and there's accounts of everyone carrying on as normal, even though they, by this point war looked inevitable. People were still going to the beach, they were still having festivals. There's, in my book there is a, a summer fate that continues as, you, as normal. Um, and that really surprised me that something we now know to be an enormous event that... Um, changed the landscape of our nation and many others permanently um, wasn't seen and I liked that Clara goes through in those same five weeks a similar transformation the woman she is at the start of this book when she first moves up to Gloucestershire 
is completely different to the woman she is at the end five weeks later. She has a completely different understanding of herself and the world she's in. Um, the the rose-tinted glasses, if you like, have not only just fallen away, they've been smashed. She is, she is much more of a woman, much more... Um, I think she surprises herself in, in this book. And she and I was also very interested in the fact that she changes sexually too, doesn't she? Mm, absolutely. She, um, yes, I was gonna, it feels like a cliche to say she arrives as a girl and leaves, leaves as, as a, a woman. woman. <laughs> but there is, there is, she goes through this huge journey. You know, that I enjoy very much um, playing with the fact that she, she comes to the house um, dependent on fact, having, she comes with with books because these books are how she's she's discovered the world but of course books can't talk about feelings books can't talk about um how you interact with someone for the first time there's there's a whole new education for her that takes place at shadowbrook including those of the heart shall we say mm. and the loins <laughs> <laughs> and the loins <laughs> Um, just to, so her job when she gets there, as I was saying earlier, her job is to fill this greenhouse. So it is, in fact, somebody's already called it the sort of hothouse of a novel, which is kind of good for both Lovely. sexuality and um, plants. So, I mean, tell us about the, um, you know, the house you say was inspired by mm -hmm. a, a National Trust house. I'd like to hear about that. But also your knowledge of plants, how you, how you filled the greenhouse yourself. So I live in Warwickshire and on the Warwickshire Gloucestershire border is a National Trust property called Hidcote Manor and Hidcote in fact was the, as I understand it, the first property that the National Trust bought simply for its gardens, um, which goes to, to tell you that it's a very special place. Um, I've known it all my life and it, it's, it's internationally renowned and very special for a variety of reasons. I know that um, it uh, was the brainchild of one man, Lawrence Johnston, who uh, moved there in, uh, the, the, I think, 1907. His mother bought the house, and there was nothing there in terms of a garden when, when they bought it. But it's, it was... Um, Lawrence spent the rest of his life developing the garden and it's full of different influences there are parts of it that are very Italianate very formal there is some topiary there's a lovely long walk that you, you go down bordered by hedges and you've got views out over Gloucestershire but there are also um, some wonderful parts of the garden that feel um, uh, quite wild uh, there is a wilderness an area called the wilderness there is a fantastic uh, cottagey feel to the old garden and that's probably one of my favourite bits. You have to sort of brush the honeysuckle aside when you're moving down its pathways. There's the vegetable garden, there is um, an orchard. But one of the things that Hidkut, I think, is, is most known for, and the thing that I love most about it, is that it has a series of rooms. Johnston created these miniature gardens uh, with four walls to them, made of hedges. And so you go into each little room of a garden and, and it will have its own... Uh, feel it have its own purpose. There is the white garden, which has primarily white flowering plants or plants with pale foliage. You have the maple garden that's dominated by a maple tree. You have the bathing pool garden where there is a bathing pool. So it's a very exciting place to visit. You go through like almost like a doll's house. You go from room to room. Each room is different. I feel there's something new to see every time I go. Um, and in every season it, it offers something. So it's a very beautiful place, but also I felt it lent itself perfectly to a novel that has a sense of threat to it, of, um, of the unseen. Because to move through that garden, particularly sort of towards the end of the day, 
I know you, you walk into these little rooms, there are benches everywhere. It would be so easy to think you weren't alone. Um, and that's a feeling I often get at the end of the day. And there's no menace in Hickett, it's just beautiful. But I thought, gosh, this is the kind of um, garden that if I wanted to play with it, I, I could really have fun. Um, so that became the inspiration for Shadowbrook, the house where, um, where the book is set. You asked me another question and I can't remember what it was. I want to know about the plants. The plants, right. So um, I I'm, came to this book not knowing a huge amount about botany and horticulture. And I knew it was important that I did know about it. Clara is wise to this. So my research was uh, threefold, really. First of all, I read books, always turned to a good book. So I, I, I developed a good understanding of um of, of plants that were growing in, in Hidcote or, or gardens like Hidcote at the time, um, and also hothouse flowers. But I also wanted to um, know Kew Gardens as, as well as I could, the Palm and Temperate House at Kew, um, particularly at the start of the 20th century, and I wanted to know specifically what was growing in the the plant shelter or glass house at Hidcote. So that was a... Um, a case of contacting both places and writing letters and um, I met two um, very very generous people who um, gave me uh, a lot of information on, on the Palm and Temperate House in Kew around 1910, 1912 and, and, and the gardener at, at um, or the gardeners, plural, at Hidcote have given me an awful lot of information about the plants that grow there. Uh, so I very much wanted it to be um, as accurate as possible. And you, you um, I mean, you and Clara populate the uh, greenhouse with tropical plants. Mm. But did you find any um, scary? I'd like to hear about some frightening flowers. The, the one that... Deadly nightshade and things like that. Oh, I'd like to say there was deadly nightshade. There wasn't. There was a plant that I, I read of, Brugmansia, which is, I think, more commonly known as Angel's Trumpet, and it's this fantastic, big um, hothouse plant that has uh, creamy yellow trumpet-like flowers like bells that hang down. And as I understand it, pretty much every part of this plant um, poses a threat. Um, it's poisonous, effectively. I know that the, um, the, the flowers themselves are hallucinogenic. If you were to um, touch them or, or um, consume them in any way. And uh, it smells fantastic as well. It's a very intoxicating smell. I think the smell is about the one thing that is not dangerous, but it is such Except a... it lures you in. It's such a strong scent that um, it's powerful. And uh, that, uh, it features in the novel. I thought the Brugmansia was a particularly interesting, creepy plant. I think you really captured that idea that in this novel that nature, it, it can be... Um, beautiful and benign, but also can be incredibly dangerous too. Absolutely, absolutely. I've always loved writing about dawn and dusk, um, right from the first book, um, as as very um, alluring, magical times, but also invariably threatening. Mm. I love that balance, and there are some scenes in this book where we see Clara in the garden at dusk. This it's this time where you can't measure distances as well, mm. and where shadows appear to move. I just find that a really exciting time of day to write about, and that features here in the book. Do you want to read us a little bit? Okay. And lastly, there was the kitchen garden. This formed perhaps a quarter of Shadowbrook's land, 
a flat exposed plain on which there were bean frames of hazel, rhubarb forces of terracotta and row after row of leafy tops which rustled in breezes. I would come to know this part well. Here I would receive a handful of potatoes to carry to the house. Here I'd find the garden boys. But for now there was only myself and the vegetables. Each crop announced itself with a small wooden stick on which I'd read such names as Scarlet Emperor, Black Beauty, British Queen, Globe. And whilst I was alone in it, there was evidence of recent human work. Footprints in the earth, hose propped against tool sheds, a spade planted into the ground as a tree might be. And I had a curious sense of being watched. Throughout the garden I had felt it. I'd felt that I'd entered a part of it, the orchard or the lime bower, at the very moment that someone else had risen and left, I felt that any metal chair might retain that person's heat. It was an unsettling notion. I chastised myself for it. It was foolishness. Yet I also looked down the lines of hedges. On the croquet lawn I turned in a slow, complete circle to see it all. House of Glass by Susan Fletcher. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Virago podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and also leave us a review. It helps other people find the podcast. We'd also love you to be in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or our website, virago.co.uk. Tune in next month for another installment of Books, Feminism, and Conversation from Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women.